0: If you take your Bible and turn to Nehemiah chapter 4, we will read from that passage of Scripture and then pray and ask the Lord to teach us what He has for us today. Nehemiah chapter 4, and beginning with verse 1, going through verse 9. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and the burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Now we shift a little bit. uh, Verse 4 gives us the words of Nehemiah Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on our own heads. And give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. And then we go back to the narrative. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word, how precious it is to us. This morning we have, we have seen your word played out, not only in the songs that we have sung, in the prayer that Jim did earlier, particularly as Kicker came and baptized Lainey, the expression of the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ working itself out, in the life of a young lady. We thank you for all of that and how that you have orchestrated this. We thank you now for your word and we pray that as we walk through this and learn how we can be those that you have called to be on mission, uh, to be about your business, that you give us the equipment that we always need. And so Father, I pray that you would help us now, not only to hear Your Word, but to apply Your Word. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. On the way to church today, and I, I, I do this a lot, uh, I was asking myself, you know, if this were the last sermon that I would ever preach, would I change the content of it? My answer was no. And most of you who have been here for any length of time know the reason why. Some of you who are new, who are visiting with us today, you you might be looking and listening and saying, Nehemiah chapter 4? The building of the walls? Would that really be the last sermon that you ever preached? Here's why. I won't go over all of the verse, but just so you'll know, you can copy it down. This is common fare for our people, but we firmly believe that it is the Word of God that transforms, not the words of a preacher. We also believe that every Scripture and all Scripture is God-breathed. It is inspired by God, and listen, it is always profitable for transformation. Jesus said it like this here's one way it's profitable. The Word of God tells us from the beginning to the end about Jesus. You know these verses of Scripture. Jesus talking and and speaking to some very religious people, and He said to them, you do search the Scriptures, but I need you to know something, that those Scriptures reveal Me. And then speaking to His disciples, that's also what He said. But all Scripture also points us to how we are to live the Christian life. And so this passage... In Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the walls not only reveals Christ, it also reveals how we are to live. We gain hope and encouragement from the Scripture. You see, we get both in Nehemiah. I'll go back and just review very, very quickly in the book of Nehemiah, and some of you may not be aware, we've been doing a study going all the way back to the book of Ezra and then inserting Esther and now Nehemiah, and we have discovered that it is a picture of God's incredible, unbelievable faithfulness to His promises to an unfaithful people. That's what Israel was. And God was predisposed to restore them as a people so that they as a people could delight in Him and declare His glory. Now, here's another thing that we've also discovered, and this is something that I have cautioned you about before. Taking a character like any biblical character, Nehemiah, Ezra, David, Moses, and idealizing those people is not always the best thing to do. So, we're not talking about idealizing Nehemiah. Yes, he was a great leader. We're not talking about idealizing the people of Israel. In fact, if you, you're going to have to wait for this, but in chapter 13 and verse 25, we, uh, we see revealed that Nehemiah was a bit of a, I'm going to use this word, some of you will know it, a curmudgeon. Do you know what that word is? Are you one? A curmudgeon is a cranky old person. And and, and Nehemiah kind of fit that bill. Uh, Unlike Ezra, we, we discovered in the book of Ezra, he prayed for the people. And when the people disobeyed in chapter 13, which they did, they always did, he got mad at them and he yelled at them and he cursed them and even pulled their hair out. So, don't idealize Nehemiah as a man. Here is what we have been learning. We have been learning all throughout the book of Nehemiah for the last three weeks, even through Easter. We talked about the gospel was found in the gates. I know you can't see this fully. You you can get some of the the, the diagrams that we drew for that. But, But as we went around in chapter 3, we began to see how the gospel is revealed beautifully in the sheep gate and in the old gate and in the dung gate and in the water gate and the fountain gate, the inspection gate last week. And the gospel is revealed wonderfully. It shows a a picture of our salvation in Christ and our growth in the Christian life. And so we come up to chapter 4, the building of the walls... We change gears a little bit because here's what we're talking about. We're talking about the fact that we, as followers of Christ, just like the Israelites back then, we are also called to build the walls. We're also called to warfare. And I want you to get that down. You're called to a dual role, Christian, just as the people of Israel were called to work, and to warfare. Nehemiah was sent specifically to seek the welfare of God's people, and just like that, the desire of of the leaders of this church is to to always point you to the only foundation that will encourage you and sustain you and empower you and keep you as you follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So, we come to the end of chapter 3 where the gates are built, the gates are all built, but the wall's not. All right? So let's jump into chapter 4, where the building of the wall continues, and see how, according to Paul in 2 Timothy, that this will be profitable for you today. You'll see it on your outline, three different movements that I want to walk you through. All right. The first one is this. I don't know if you like the military motif, but it's all through Scripture for a Christian. Here's the reality. Expect opposition. Don't be surprised by it. And at the same time, don't ignore it. Now, I want you to look at the title of my message today. And and I chose this uh, very intentionally. It's entitled, Citizen Soldiers. And that's what Israel was. And do you know today, to a great degree, that's what they still are. The Israeli IDF is set up so that unless you are physically unable or mentally unable, every citizen of Israel who lives there is also a soldier. Now, let me give you some insight lay that over onto the Christian life. You and I have been called to be a part of a new kingdom, a new citizenship that is the church. And I am absolutely blown away that more Christians don't realize that not only are we given this incredible citizenship in the kingdom of God, but we are also called to be soldiers. To put it in the terms of Nehemiah that we'll see not only this week, but next week, we are, Christian, listen, you and I are to be builders and we're to be fighters. There's really no way around that. You know what this is? This is a much-needed shift in our worldview. We need to see it. Nehemiah 4 says it like this, and I I love the way it pictures the uh, citizen-soldier kind of of motif. Look at it. Fight for your brothers. This is very much a family affair. You're not just fighting for yourself. We're, We're fighting for one another. Your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. And then this beautiful picture that we'll get to this next week, the Lord willing, those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored with the work on the work. With one hand, he labored, and with the other hand, he held a weapon. And that is the picture of the citizen soldier, not only of the Israelite in Nehemiah's day, but also for the Christian in our day. One person has said it like this, and I agree with this. Life is war. That's not all it is. But it is always that. And when God called Israel out of captivity, and this is what we see in Genesis chapter 12, going all the way back to the call of Abraham, and then when they were in captivity, calling them out to become this little enclave, he birthed a people that had a specific responsibility that they forgot. Basically, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, says it like this. There's a top line and there's a bottom line. The top line is, Abraham, I've called you. And guess what? Not because you deserve it, but because I want to. I am going to bless you. But you're not supposed to take that blessing and just rest on it. Because the second part of that, the bottom line for all of Israel, was that you will be a blessing to the nations as you take my name to them. But Israel forgot that. You see, when, let's fast forward to the New Testament. When God birthed the New Testament church, He did the same thing. Now, I want you to get this, because I really believe that in our day and time, we, we have shifted the focus and worldview is absolutely essential. So, here the, the, the resurrected Christ is saying to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's wonderful. Or did you to just sit and park on that power? No. That's the top line. You will be blessed with the Holy Spirit of promise. But there is a bottom line to who we are. Now, because you've heard this in the Great Commission Don't just draw a blank. Hear it again, because the bottom line is, you will go. The church of Jesus Christ, much like Israel, replanted in Nehemiah's day, was to advance the glory of God and the name of God in the nations. We've been given marching orders. We are not uh, wholly huddled, being assaulted by our enemies. Jesus never saw that. In fact, what He did was not only to give us marching orders and tell us to go into all the world from your Jerusalem to your Judea, Samaria, and even to the uttermost parts of the earth, but he also gave us a a wonderful promise. Have you forgotten that? He said, I will build my church. I'm going to build my church. And again, he viewed the church, that's us, as being on the offense. In fact, in such a way... That he said, the, the very gates of hell will not prevail against you. Now, I, 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 again, I know that you've always heard that, but there is a nuance of this that I think that somehow the church, particularly in the West, has forgotten. We know we're supposed to follow Jesus individually. And so normally when we come to church, we're just a collection of of individuals who come, we sing songs, we listen to a sermon, maybe, and then we go out. But if we really hear what Jesus is saying and what the whole gist of Scripture is saying, that it is this, we are vitally connected. Now I know that we've got people from other churches here today, but let me say, you are at least you should be, you should be vitally connected to your local assembly of believers. And you may do some things a little bit differently. You may have some different beliefs out there, but at your core, you affirm the basic doctrines of the faith, and your mission is the same as the mission that the Lord Jesus has given to Heritage, to go out and build the kingdom. This is what is exemplified in the book of Nehemiah. This is what is wonderfully carried out in the New Testament church. Every member has a part. Everyone. Everyone. It it may not be a visible part. Maybe all you can do is stay at home and pray for your church or your pastor your leaders or, or, or vacation Bible school that's coming up. Maybe you've been given more of a gift of health and life and and all the rest of that. And you should be plugged in somewhere meaningfully to the local church. Later on at the end of this service, we're going to go right into a business meeting. We're going to affirm some things that the elders, we're not going to discuss those. It'll be just a very quick vote. But, but we, we allow a two-week period of time before any business meeting like this that we come to. Why? Because it's not just the elders who are calling the shots. Yes, we lead. But every member's voice is important. And we give that time so that we can hear you. You know, by the way, Jim again mentioned a couple of things. He mentioned church membership, membership matters class. We're not trying just to get people to become members of our church. But when you do, as he wisely said, we want you to know what you're getting into. And that's a good thing. We want you to be a member so you can help us make decisions so that we can be again on the offensive. Now, Let me fine-tune this just a little bit more. Are you with me here so far? Okay. This means yes, this means I I'm not sure that you see it like I see it, okay? This is a huge shift in worldview. Now watch this. As I'm talking with believers, not just in our church, but Christians all around... Here is the world view about the church and the world that most believers hold to. It's this, that basically we live in a good world. All right, are you following? Or at least at one time it was. There was a time, and we always go back to the good old days. By the way, that's not just in our culture. You talk to people in different cultures, and they will always go back to the way things used to be, whatever ethnic background it was or is. And they'll say, you know, our culture is basically good, but the evil around us is pressing in, and it's trying to take us over. And so we as God's people are on the defensive that is not the worldview of Scripture. And I just said it, but I'm going to say it again. Let me show you some Scripture to go with that. We do not live in a world that is basically good, and that is operated by systems that are good, but rather fallen. We live in a fallen world, That's the first part of the worldview that you have to get down. We live in a world that since Adam's sin has been plunged into death and darkness and sin, and God in that had a redemptive plan. Moreover, our world is run by an entity with other entities under him. And I just pulled out several this is not exhaustive. we know that the whole world did you realize this this is why i said don't don't talk about the good old days and we're trying to go back because the whole world does right now and has been lying in the power of the evil one. Oh, he's also called the ruler of this world oh he's also called the prince of the power of the air and he's also called the god of this world Now, into this dark system of death and despair, God has planted his people. He did it through Abraham. He did it in Nehemiah's day. Do you understand what he did? Israel had been taken captive. And they're over in in Babylon, in Persia. And God wants to take this little group. They never numbered over 50,000 people. And he takes them back to an area, a little geographical area called Jerusalem. The walls are burnt down, torn down. The gates are all burned down. And God plants them there so that they will be, as he originally intended, a light unto the nation. Again, fast forward to today. The church on the day of Pentecost came into being. And God inserted His church into a world to take the gospel, the good news of salvation, like Laney believed, like most of you have believed, to a world that is out there. And again, I will say it like that, that means that the church, this church, your local church, the church around the world, that we, listen to me please, we are on the offensive. We're not in this posture. When Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail, He assumed a church that was on the attack. So what's going to happen if you and I, church, are true to that calling? And by the way, what does that mean? That sounds militant. And I know that sometimes people get all, oh, pastor, don't talk. Let me give you an example. One of our sweet ladies stopped by the other day, and she had this little card that she had made. And it was a, a card designed to give to someone so that the door could be opened to share the gospel. We were just talking about, you know, what, what do I do with these? Well, have you thought about putting one in? You're, you're a little bit older. You're old school. So, you know, you pay, probably pay your bills with checks. Some of you don't. But when you do that, put one of those cards in. When you pull up to Sonic, or if you're getting your grandchildren Chick-fil-A, give one of those cards to that nice young man or young woman, and they'll say thank you, and what do you say? My pleasure. That's the church on the attack. Anything you are doing in your home, in your marriage in your family structure, at your work, out there as you live your life in the church, anything you are doing to make the name of Jesus great, you are on the attack. And you had better guess that the enemy will oppose it. Let me encourage you to do something. I'm I'm just going to do this real quick. You can overlay it. I don't know if you want to take a note or just remember it. But I, 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 every once in a while, whether I'm in it for our Bible study or not, I'll go through the book of Acts. And I love going through the book of Acts. And uh, in, in my Bible right now, I have it recorded, where that beginning with uh, chapter 1, and I put on the chapters where the church is on the attack, I put attack. And then where the enemy comes in, I put the word counterattack. Now again, worldview, worldview, worldview is so important. The way that we've normally seen it, I believe, is that the enemy attacks and then we we counterattack. No. We are on the attack, the enemy counterattacks. Now if you're not familiar with the New Testament, Paul's writing to the Corinthians, he said, you know, the enemy has schemes. He's going to use the schemes. In other words, there's going to be, sometimes there will be attacks from outside. Nehemiah chapter 4 shows that, okay? And sometimes there will be attacks from the inside. When we get to chapter 5, we're going to find an eternal, internal attack caused by greed. Well, lo and behold, if you fast forward to the book of Acts, what you're going to find, and this, this is fascinating. The day of Pentecost comes, Peter preaches a sermon, and a bunch of people get saved, 3,000 men. Okay, I'm just going to ask you, I hope you get the answer right. Was that an attack or a counterattack? Hello? (laughs) It was an attack. Remember, he... This is the brand new church planted on the day of Pentecost. They don't know anything except the apostles are there and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden Peter stands and preaches and he talks about the gospel. And Jesus was crucified for our sins and 3,000 men, not including women and children, get saved. That was an attack. Well, lo and behold, it doesn't end there. Because in chapter four, we go on to see, or in chapter, that was in chapter three. In chapter two, we see another attack. Peter and John, they're going up to the temple. They see a lame beggar. What do they do? They do just what Jesus did, and they say, Silver and gold have I none, such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus, stand and walk. Boing. He does. And a crowd gathers, and Peter attacks the kingdom of darkness. He preaches the gospel. Well, if you think Pentecost was something, 3,000 men, guess how many men get saved now? 5,000 men. So in a couple of days, the church on the attack already has, I, I don't know how, 12 to 15,000 people that used to be citizens of the kingdom of the devil, and now they've been transferred into the kingdom of light. And what do you think the enemies of God are going to do about that? Same thing they did in Nehemiah's day. We're going to build the walls because that's what God's told us to do. Nehemiah said, I'm going to build the wall. We've got the gates. We're going to build the walls. That's what we're doing. And the enemies of Nehemiah took notice. So did the enemies of the Christians in the book of Acts. The counterattack. When they said, stop. Stop preaching. Stop preaching. We're going to threaten you. We'll come back. I hope I have time to read what their response was, just like Nehemiah's response. And then chapter 5. Do you know what chapter 5 is? It was the internal counterattack. The first one was from the authorities without. Stop doing this. Stop doing this. We can't because we're the church on, we're the, church on the attack, you see. Maybe we ought to change our name. We've, we've got church on the rock and church on the move. Church on the attack, maybe. We, we, we don't understand, we have a higher authority, we, we can't stop talking about this, we can't, no matter what you say. And then Satan, because he's a master of scheming, he goes on the inside, and we have the story of, in chapter 5 of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira. So if, we'll get to these things later, but if the devil can't get you from the outside, he wants to get us from the inside. Lost people are not neutral to the gospel. Sometimes we act as if they are. And sometimes they'll be nice to you, they'll be cordial. Would you, would you mind if I shared Jesus Christ with you? Yeah, okay. A lot of times they won't even be that nice. Here, here's why the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. Guess what? If they're hostile to God, they're going to be hostile to you. Because you're inserting the truth of God, the light of God in the gospel, into the darkness of their world system. Again, does that make sense? I am telling you, and this is something I'm still trying to get my arms around. Look at that first quote by Vodi Suffering is common for all, but we get these things confused. However persecution, which is a form of suffering, can be avoided. All you have to do is compromise. I am not overstating it to say that there is no witness protection program for the Christian who understands that we are aggressively on the attack, and I'm not talking about physical attack. I'm talking about the gospel. Several years ago, uh, Jan and I were in Turkey. Ted and Judy Webb were with us. I see Ted back there. And after we administered in our area, uh, we were in Istanbul in the Grand Bazaar. And uh, Ted's dad at that time had made pens. We had, we had made a little uh, uh, piece of paper. Remember that, Ted? And we were giving out those pins and a little testimony. And so we were going through the Grand Bazaar and giving those out. And I gave that to a shop owner. And he he was polite. He took it. And then as I was walking off, because it was in Turkish. Now, he could speak some English. He came after me. His smile had turned to a, a frown. Because in my little brief testimony, I had said the words, I had found that the Bible is the truth and that Jesus is the Messiah. It it, it was, in our culture, I'm not not engaged like that with heated, you know, I I told them later and, and Ted and Judy and Jan were all praying, I said, I'm glad that didn't happen in a dark alley. Really? Because he, he, was, he was angry. We don't, we don't get it sometimes when we go and tell someone that we've got an answer to their problem. Again, and we see this more clearly in other cultures. Really, they may be smiling, but what they're really thinking is, I don't have the problem, you've got the problem. When we come and tell them, I have truth, that's a wonderful message from us. But they're thinking, what you're telling me is that the way I believed and my ancestors believed was false. And that's why sometimes the most brutal persecution can take place. Votie I already quoted that, but I... I I thought this, I I don't know exactly who said this. It might have been Wearsby or somebody. Here's why it's important to have this worldview. Wimpy worldviews make for wimpy Christians and wimpy Christians won't survive the days ahead. So Church at Heritage, let's have a worldview that can help us go to the mat for the things of God. Second point, when your attacks come from all around, first take the fight vertical. That's exactly what Nehemiah did. Now, there is an error in this. Do you see what it is? Based on the worldview that I just gave you. What do you need to correct in that, that this is intentional? What? yes. You're on the attack, so when your counter come from all around, first take the fight vertical. Did you see that little insertion of those several verses? This is a cool prayer. that they, I'm, We're going to talk about this in just a second. But this prayer of Nehemiah in chapter 4 is, is really is, is, is good. We need to learn from it. Here's what they did. They came after him. Let, let's look at... Uh, Well let's see this, Um, they were all around him, Okay, did you see that? Uh, When we read it a few moments ago, four enemies, one in the north, one on the east, one on the south, one in the west, and basically what they came doing was mocking, that's the first thing that they did. Has any enemy ever done that to you, counterattack, when you're, you're, you're trying to do something? And by the way, I would say that the primary way that this is going to come is when you're engaging your family. Because that, that, that's the most important battle that you're ever going to be a part of as a believer. So the enemy will come and he'll start mocking you and accusing you. You're so weak. If a fox gets on what you're building, it would break down. You don't have the resources to do that. What you're doing won't last. It won't make any difference. Now, I find stunning what Nehemiah did and did not do. I'm not going to go back and read it for you, but I I want you to go back later on. He didn't argue with them. I'm stronger than you think. He didn't do that. He just took the fight vertical. Here's a thought. Here's a thought, really. For your spiritual enemies, instead of arguing with them, why don't you just go ahead and admit your weakness? And oh, by the way, tell your spiritual enemies they don't know the half of it. You think I'm weak? Man, you don't even know. But here's why we take it vertical. Here's why we admit our weaknesses, and take the fight to our God. Because Paul said, hey, here's what I did. I admitted it. And here's what God said to me. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power, God's power, is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast about my weaknesses. You know, as I studied this, um, Several commentaries, I found this interesting because when the commentary said it, I went back to the pages of of, of Nehemiah chapter 4 and I thought, I don't see this here. They talked about discouragement, how that this brought about discouragement. I don't see any discouragement here. What I do see is just the opposite. And let me show you what I mean. They were surrounded They were absolutely surrounded. I was thinking of Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage? That's what they were doing. The nations were raging. They they were coming against the anointed and the people. And then I thought of the apostle Paul, uh, of the perfect picture of this. We are hard-pressed. This is King James, New King James. We are hard-pressed on every side. Now, here's the interesting thing. These enemies... The Samaritans, the Ammonites, the the Ashdodites, uh, all of those typically would have been attacking one another. That's what Gentiles do. But when God planted this little enclave of God followers in their midst, they turned their wrath to the people who were wanting to make Yahweh known and build the kingdom, and they came together and they concentrated And coordinated their hatred. Just one one more reminder. Why do God's enemies hate God and hate us so much? Do you know the answer to that? Because God's aim is to save people and to make them worshipers. And that from every tribe, every tongue, every nation every people. Satan's aim is that nobody be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So, he will seek to cut off anyone who is a part of God's agenda. So, Nehemiah takes it vertical because he knows something. I was reminded of an old song. I don't know how many of you... Knew this old song. It, it goes with the second chronicle verse. Oh Lord, there is none like you to help us between the mighty and the weak. An old song I used to sing. When the enemy presses in hard, do not fear. Why? The battle belongs to the Lord, and it really is true. Now, did you notice Nehemiah's prayer? Okay, I, I, if, if you have your Bibles open, if you don't, just listen to it. Interesting prayer, and I know some of you are gleefully rubbing your spiritual hands together, thinking, oh, wow, this is the way that I can pray for my enemies. Uh, Let's not be too quick. Here's what he prayed. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunts on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let their sin, not their sin, be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Now, again, this particular kind of prayer, I'm going to say this word. You don't have to remember the word, but it's called an imprecatory prayer. All through the Psalms, you may notice them. Let the enemy's feet slip. Let them stumble into the pit, let their let their teeth be shattered. All these kinds of prayers. Now, again, before you start firing up your imprecatory prayer life toward your enemies, Lord, let the fleas of a thousand camels <laughs> infect their arm. No, 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 no. This kind of prayer, listen. This is so, so important. This kind of prayer is reserved for our spiritual enemies, those who cannot be redeemed. That's what Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, Ashdodites, that's what they were symbolic of. That's why when we studied David and Goliath, David was not trash-talking a man He was coming against the the, the forces of evil, saying, you have defamed God. We don't wrestle. You don't pray this kind of prayer against people. This prayer is prayed toward our spiritual enemies. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities. Remember those people that are in control? Or those entities, not people, that are in control against the cosmic power over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is a cry for God to act. I'll tell you something else that I see in this prayer, at least that I don't see. I don't see any hint of vengeance on the part of Nehemiah. And isn't that what Romans chapter 12 says, that we are, we're not to take our own vengeance? So what do we do instead when we are persecuted? Bless and do not curse. Never avenge yourselves. Leave room for the wrath of God. And that is exactly what Nehemiah was doing because these enemies were a direct Counterattack from the spiritual forces of wickedness against the honor of Almighty God. Here's what we're to pray for our enemies that are people. By the way, where, where does this start? You know, where I, I always start with the, the the closest. Where does this start? Husband and wife, of course. Is it possible for husbands and wives to be at enmity with one another? Yeah? Family, move on out. Here's what we do. You shall love. You've heard it said, love your enemy, uh, love your neighbor and and hate your enemy. No, but I've said to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Very quickly, number three. We're going to finish with this and uh, move into our very brief time of meeting. Be alert for battle and keep on building. I love this. Be alert. Uh, if you're on the attack, if you're seeking to make a difference for the cause of Christ, when are you going to be counterattacked? Well, that's just it. You don't know. So keep your head on a swivel. Literally, keep your head on the swivel. Be ready for the counterattacks. But keep on building. First Peter says this: be sober-minded. Be watchful as you move forward. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This illustration will escape some of you, but I love what Oliver Cromwell said to his troops. Trust in God and keep your powder dry. By the way, did you notice something? Oh, oh, I I just see this as an application. So we built the wall right after the prayer. We just went on building. And all the wall was joined together, watch this, to half its height. What? It's not finished? Half its height? Let me ask you something. You you know this to be true. What? Please hear this. What is the easiest time in your life, spiritual life, to give up? I like to backpack. Used to. Don't do it as much as I used to. And especially on a grueling back hike up a mountain, what's the easiest time? give up before you're halfway there. Once you get past the halfway, you keep looking with your eye on the prize. Could I I just apply this to wherever you are in your marriage, in your family, your spiritual life? And, And frankly you don't know if it's halfway, but the enemy will come in, you don't have the resources to finish. What you're building is weak. You're only halfway there. Why don't you just go ahead and give up? Endurance is going to keep building. And that's what we'll circle back to this next week. And we will talk about. I love what Alan Redpath said. I'll quote this. And then... Dennis uh, McGee, if you'll come forward after I quote it, you, you can see it right there. If these walls were to stand, maybe this is where some of you are too, they had to be built on solid foundations, and therefore every bit of rubbish had to be cleared away until the foundations were exposed. Before the walls could be built, there was a great deal of underground work to be done. Before they started building the walls upward, they had to have the foundations downward. Before they could bear fruit outwardly, they had to bear fruit inwardly. They had to go down before they could go up. And the foundation is Jesus Christ crucified. If you've never begun the work of building, then today, if you hear his voice, is the day to repent of your sins. Trust in Jesus Christ as the only Savior. And become a citizen soldier